So I've got these cool uh, bracelets. They're leather cords that have a little kind of uh, brush, bron uh, brush silver thing on it that says faith with a little cross on it. So, you know, I've got a couple of trivia questions. The first trivia question, you're going to have to come up to me after services. This is especially for those who were here yesterday and today. Because I got the same sermon, but I changed it. There's something different about today's sermon. A whole new point. If you can come up to me after services and tell me what that point is, you'll get one of these bracelets. Now, for those of you here now, first time, I'm finishing up Zechariah. And then, when I come back from Israel, I'll be starting in on the New Testament. But there's one book left in the Bible that I'm going to hit. Last book of the Bible. If you know what it is, that's my next set of sermons. Let me see your hand and you can get the bracelet. What? Nope, nope. It's another one of those small name ones. Malachi. Malachi, you got the bracelet. Awesome. Congratulations. I love it when our young people compete. That's awesome. So, if you really like that bracelet, I got a few more in my office. Maybe I'll bring those out next week. Hey, just for fun, um, since we were doing anniversaries earlier, how many of you have been married at least five years? Let me see your hands. Wow! Look at around. That's awesome. Because I was talking to kids the other day, and they talking about how nobody's keeping their marriages together anymore. Almost all of you put your hands up. All right. How many of you have been married at least 10 years? Wow! That's a lot of you. How many at least 15? Wow! That's amazing. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Michael and Nancy the other day, and Nancy was saying, yeah, it's our 27th anniversary, and Michael's given me the 15 of my best years. Yeah, 28. Well, we have 20 years now. How many of you have been married 20 years? Woo! Deanna and I are approaching 25. This is coming December. So 25. Wow. How many of you are at least 25 years old? <laughs> How many of you have been married at least 30 years? You guys are awesome. All right. 35 years. That is, hey, you notice, now we do have a few hands in the back, but most of those hands are sitting up front. Let that be a lesson to you young folks sitting in the back. How many, what am I at, 35? Yeah. 35 years. Wow, congratulations, that is awesome. You know, 40? Dang, there's so many of you, that is amazing. You realize I'm running out of life here. 45, wow, that is awesome. All right, how many of you have seen the big 5-0? Vern in the back, all right. Vern and Judy, woohoo! That is awesome. I'm, I'm going to stop there because they're going to start coming in off the streets and I don't. <laughs> that is wonderful. God bless you guys. Okay, so we're finishing up the book of Zechariah this morning. We're going to be looking at one verse. And in this verse three messianic prophecies. And we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills all three of them. So today's lesson, kind of like several we've done as we've been going through the Old Testament, is uh, looking at prophecies and seeing how Jesus fulfills them. The Bible is an extremely unique book. I remember I was at the book fair with, uh, with Doug and um, met some nice people. But I also told Doug I have never seen such a concentration of intellectual idiots in all my life. <laughs> 
some of the things that people were trying to say to me and argue with was just like, oh my gosh, really, do, you, do you really believe? You don't even believe that. Why are you saying that? So I started asking them questions and challenging them just to get them to admit the foolishness of the things they were telling me. Crazy. But one of the guys says, well, what, what makes the Bible so special? Why should I believe that? So, well, let me tell you one of the reasons the Bible is so special, because it has prophecy in it. And it's the only book on the planet that has prophecy that you can look at and watch it be fulfilled, that you can verify that it's been fulfilled. So the Quran doesn't have that. The Bhagavad Gita doesn't have that. It's the Bible and the Bible only. And so just in this one verse, Zechariah 9.9, three prophecies that we know were fulfilled in Jesus. Let me read to you the prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, how do you know this is prophecy? Put yourself back in Zechariah's day. And he says, the king's coming. Great, there were no kings. When Zechariah wrote, the kingdom was done. They had been destroyed, they had come back, but there were no more kings. So when he's talking about a coming king, it has to be prophecy. Because there were no kings back in those days. He uses some poetic, we'll go by it through a piece at a time. He uses some poetic devices here. Uh, Jewish ones that I've pointed out to you in the past, as I've mentioned, but I have to repeat because we always have visitors. The Hebrew language is not like English. When we do poetry, at least simple, basic poetry, it rhymes. You know, we like to make words sound the same, and we think we're being clever. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. That's poetry. Now, we have more complicated types of poetry. I understand that. But Hebrew automatically rhymes. And so... Poetry is, is not rhyming. Instead, it's what I call thought rhyme. There's something called parallelism, where they'll do something and say it like twice. Here's a chart for a perfect example of the verse we're looking at. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. It just said the same thing twice. Daughter of Zion, Zion is Jerusalem. So daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, it's saying the same thing twice. And then it says, rejoice greatly. Obviously, that's noisily. And then it says, shout. So this is a good example of Hebrew poetry. It says the same thing in a couple of different ways. Now, Hebrew poetry can be, say, one thing and then just the opposite. You can say the exact same thing twice, or it can say one thing and then build on it. So, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem... You could say that's exactly the same thing, but rejoice greatly and shout, they're similar, but not exactly the same thing. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, it's just talking about the Jewish people. It's just, you know, fancy talk for the Jewish people. So rejoice, Jewish people, because the king is coming. Great. What king? There are no kings. So it's a prophecy. What king are we talking about? So the Jewish people throughout their generations had to put their thinking caps on, and it was obvious we're talking about the Messiah here. In fact, the Talmud says this. He that sees a donkey in his dream, remember the king is riding on a donkey, he who sees a donkey in his dream, let him look for salvation. As it is said, see, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. So they quote Zechariah 9 and know that it refers to the Messiah by talking about the salvation he brings. There's even this famous, well, famous, there's a Jewish fable that says, during the creation week, a special donkey was created. 
And this was the donkey that Abraham used when he brought Isaac to be sacrificed. And the same donkey that Moses used when he left Midian to go back to Egypt. And the same donkey, let me read, they say, Messiah, the son of David, was riding upon at his coming, according to Zechariah 9.9. I mean, I think it's kind of weird that in the Bible there's a famous donkey. I mean, I can understand a famous stallion or a famous lion or even a famous hawk. A famous donkey? And why does the king come riding on a donkey? Would that be your chief choice of transportation? I mean, camel? You're way up high and you can conquer on a camel. Or a horse, a magnificent steed, an elephant. Donkey? And yet it says the king's going to come riding on a donkey. I mean, donkey was like the everyman's ride of the Bible. If you couldn't afford a horse or a camel, you had a donkey. So everybody had a donkey. Donkeys are useful animals, don't get me wrong. But they're kind of weird, kind of lame. So the question is, why does the king choose to come riding in on a donkey? And I think the answer is given right in the text. And that's what I often do. I, I look back again and see if there's something not necessarily hidden, but something I didn't pay attention to first round through. And that's exactly what happens. Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. The answer is right there. But in this translation, it uses the word gentle, which I have learned is not the best translation here. The Hebrew word is ani, and it can also be translated, and I think better here translated, as humble. In fact, that word is used, the exact same Hebrew word in 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight. In this version of the Bible, it says this, and we're going to see Hebrew parallelism again. Parallelism also helps us learn words. Watch. Here's the parallelism. Listen. You rescue the humble, but you look for ways to put down the proud. Humble is in parallel to proud. Okay? So we know that the word is proud. We're not di disputing that. The question is, what does the other word mean? Well, humble is the opposite of proud, so that must be what it means. It helps us learn it by looking at its opposite. He's either big and strong, or he's small and weak, if you wanted to know the def difference of strong. Really fat dude, and a really blank dude, just the opposite. What word do I need? Skinny. So if you didn't know the word skinny, you would know it because of the parallel. And that's how we learn a lot of words also in the Bible. Well, I know two guys. One was really smart, and the other was dumb, right? Yeah, so that's how it works in the Bible, too. Sometimes people argue about what's the word mean. So just look at it in parallel, and it'll give you the, the meaning. So this word ani is used in parallel as the opposite of proud. So let me read it to you again. Why on a donkey? Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey. That's why he's on a donkey. He's no steed rider. He doesn't have a Maserati. He's not coming to conquer and show everybody how awesome he is. He's just a gentle humble man, coming into Jerusalem like everybody else would, on a donkey. Donkeys portray humility. Horses, majesty. And uh, I don't know. I guess if I was king, I'd be coming in on the steed. But uh, it just goes to show you Jesus knows a lot more than I do. Your king comes to you, it says, righteous 
and having salvation. All right. Salvation in the Bible means two things. Christians almost always and often mistakenly equate salvation with having our sins removed and going to heaven. But it's also a word of physical deliverance. In fact, that's how it's used most in the Bible. You know, Lot got kidnapped and Abraham sent his men to go rescue him, give him salvation. That kind of salvation is used more in the Bible than the other kind, or at least a lot. I've never actually counted both. But throughout the Old Testament, that kind of word is used a lot. So when the Messiah comes, it says, the king's coming, he's gentle, and he's bringing salvation. What kind of salvation is he bringing? Well, I think he's bringing both. He actually does both kinds. In Jewish tradition, and I've had this conversation with Jewish people. I bet you Michael has. I'll have to, you can tell me later. Because he's talked to a lot of Jewish people about Jesus. And we'll tell them, you know, we're Jewish too, and we believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they'll say, how can you believe he's the Messiah? Where's world peace? Because according to Jewish tradition, when the Messiah comes, he brings salvation, deliverance from our enemies, and peace on earth, goodwill towards man. Since there's no peace on earth, the Jewish people are still being persecuted. Obviously, Messiah hasn't come. They're not wrong. They're only half right. See, the Bible does say that when Messiah comes, he'll bring world peace. Even the angels said, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But he has the other kind of salvation, too. That's the salvation from sin. And so we believe as Christians that when Jesus came, he came on a donkey and he brought salvation to men by dying for our sins. And when he comes back, he'll conquer the earth and bring the other kind of salvation. So... They're close to right. They're only, they only have half the story. They've even come up with a legend, a belief system, that there are two messiahs. So in Jewish Talmudic thought, there are two messiahs. There's the messiah who comes, who's rejected, and dies for the sins of the people. And then there's a messiah, a king, son of David, or even David himself, who reigns and leads the world in, from Jerusalem. There's even one legend that says that Messiah, the ruling Messiah, will resurrect the dead Messiah from the dead. So it's crazy, but believe it or not, buried within Jewish tradition is the belief in a Messiah who dies for people's sins and rises from the dead. And yet when we tell them we believe Jesus is that Messiah, they think we're nuts. So we educate them, do the best we can. So he comes to bring salvation riding on a donkey. But there's a passage of scripture that says you're going to be riding on a horse, too. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he, but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And then he quotes Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Messiah, when he comes, 
will come riding on a horse to conquer. But in Zechariah 9, he comes riding on a donkey. The donkey represents one type of salvation. The horse represents another. Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. He was humble and just. He came riding on a donkey. And we'll talk about the rejoicing in Zion in just a moment. So I want to look at all three of those piece by piece. Was Jesus humble? You know he was. I mean, he was born in a manger. No, let me start that over. You know he was. He was born. Why would God be born as a human being? You know, that's humble. Can you imagine doing that? You're God, and you decide, hey, I'm going to become a maggot. Because the difference between humans and God is just beyond our comprehension. To become a physically contained, pain, disease, susceptible I can't even imagine. That's humility. He humbled himself beyond what we'll ever understand and was born, not just born, but born in a manger. There was no, not the Waldorf Astoria, not even in a tent where animals drop their stuff. And he wasn't born to Roman aristocracy like we would have been if we had to be born. He was born to Jews, the humblest of all the people, and to a poor Jewish family. How do I know they were poor? Because when they go to make the offering for Mary's purity, it's two pigeons. And in the law, it says it's supposed to be something else unless you're poor. Then you can offer two pigeons. And she offers two pigeons, so we know they were poor. Talk about humble. And he spends his time not getting served, though he was God in human flesh. He spent his time serving others. Serving others to exhaustion. Day after day, so much so that he was in a boat that was about to capsize and he was sleeping. Like, wake up! Don't you care that we're going to drown? Got a clue. Why do you think he's sleeping? He's exhausted. Even the storm's not waking him up. He served. He wasn't served. And then he allowed himself to be mistreated. Broken in body and in heart and in spirit. And executed willingly for us. And while he's being tortured, being mocked by the maggots. Wow. So when it says your king comes to you humble, that is a powerful prophecy. Kings are not humble. They're the exact opposite of humble. That's how they become kings. They're the king of the hill. They beat up everybody under them and then they're king. Jesus is the humble king. And then he said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, he was a gentle, humble man. So the prophecy said that when the king comes, he'll be humble. Jesus was humble. The prophecy says that when the king comes, he'll be riding on a donkey, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Quoting Zechariah 9 here. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, 
and Jesus sat on them. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of being humble. He fulfilled the prophecy of coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That same prophecy said, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. So Jesus, the humble man, is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, and here's what happened. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. To this very day, Christian pilgrims will line that road with palm fronds and shout out Hosanna. Now you can get thousands of people on that little road from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem. We're going to walk it. We're going to walk that very road. Same one. It's paved now, but it's the same road. I wonder what it sounded like, them all shouting out, Hosanna, 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 like a stadium full of people. Oh, Jerusalem shouted all right when Messiah came. The prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. And what's even more amazing is what they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Why did they call him the son of David? You realize that meant they were calling him the Messiah. His name was Yeshua. And his mom's name was Miriam. And his dad's name was Joseph. They were calling him the son of David. That was a messianic accolade. And they were saying Hosanna. Hosanna is a word taken from Psalm 118 or 119, I forget which, which basically is crying out to God to save us. Salvation. Give us salvation, son of David, who happens to be riding into Jerusalem to the shouts of the people on a donkey. Zechariah 9 is fulfilled to the exact minutest of details. The word of God is true. According to the Talmud, because the Old Testament talks about the Messiah coming on a donkey but it also talks about him coming in the clouds of heaven. And we know he's going to come in the clouds of heaven as the word of God, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, riding on a horse as a conqueror. So how can he do both? Again, they thought two messiahs. We think two comings, and we're waiting for the second coming. But they had an interesting concept. Let me quote it for you. About the coming of the Messiah, here's what it says. If they are worthy... He will come with the clouds of heaven. If they are not worthy, he will come poor and riding on a donkey. Boy, did they nail that. Because we were not worthy. And that's exactly why he came riding on the donkey. To be our savior. Not the conqueror the first time. To handle that which was much more important. Our savior from sin. When the humble man from Galilee came into Jerusalem dined with his disciples, was betrayed by one of his very own, willingly allowed himself to be led off, tortured, and crucified to save us from our sins. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And here we are a few years later, and we have a choice to make. Will we choose to follow him? Will he be our king? Or will we be rebels and choose not to follow him? 
if we choose to follow him, we turn away from our sins. And we say, God, we're going to follow you. We believe in Jesus. We believe he died for us and rose again. Or not. And it's your choice. And I just pray that you'll choose wisely. Would you please join me in prayer? God, your word is amazing. All those years before Jesus came, you said those things. And they were fulfilled to the very detail. Thank you for showing us how in control of history you are. How you know the future. And thank you for sending the king to us. And we rejoice and we shout because we are his followers. Amen. You know, play with me. Three times. Let's shout out Hosanna. All right? And let me see how loud just this room can get in honor of the king. Hosanna! 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 All right.